Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 22. Today's guest is Lisa Jaster. Lisa is a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. She was one of the first women to complete ranger school. She's been stationed in Korea and has deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq with the U.S. Army. Lisa also has a new book in the works called Delete the Adjective. She's a senior consultant for the Talent War Group, a senior advisor for the McChrystal Group, and a Dive Pirates Foundation board member. On top of all this, she's also a wife, mom, purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a bow hunter, and she works out like a beast. If Superwoman was real, she would be Lisa Jaster. Steady, steady, nice and steady, light, heel, cover. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. So you better get out of my way now. So you better get out of my way now. Before I roll all over you. Before I roll all over you. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. We've had a few months of back and forth. I know you're an extremely busy woman and I've been sort of away and then back home for a number of months. So I'm glad we finally nailed down this interview. Yeah, this is fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. So where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? So I actually grew up in Wisconsin. So I was born in Indianapolis, but I was raised in a small town called Plymouth, Wisconsin. Just a good old farming community and nothing exciting. Okay. And so growing up, were you into athletics and being active? Uh, I tried to play soccer and was pretty poor at it. I think I was a little lazy, maybe. I played basketball for a number of years, did pretty well in middle school, and then didn't make the team in high school. So I ended up being a cheerleader. So I actually was the uh, captain of the cheerleading squad for both football and basketball. And now your daughter's in cheerleading, right? She is. She is. I, I've tried to get her to play football, actually, and she still, she absolutely loves cheerleading. But she also, she also does volleyball and basketball, and she just got back from pole vaulting camp, and she also wrestles and does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So she runs the <laughs> So many activities. Yes. Yeah, it reminds me of when I was younger, I wanted to do everything. So instead of sort of picking one sport and trying to get as good as possible at that one sport, I just wanted to try all of the different sports. I think it's great. So did you have any military members in your family when you were growing up? So my dad was medically retired well before my brother or I were even born. So he was military. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather served in the Army Air Corps before there was an Air Force. But again, it was all well before I, uh, I entered into this world. What made you interested in joining the military? Interestingly enough, my uh, grandmother, my paternal grandmother, bought a book written by one of the first women to graduate from West Point. And it's called In the Men's House by a woman named Carol Barkalaw. And it's a really good book, just kind of outlining the challenges of being a first. And when I read the book, I was in sixth grade going on seventh. And I thought, wow, this sounds really hard. And from then on, I wanted to go to West Point. And the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to join the Army. Of course, Desert Storm happened, Desert Storm, Desert Shield around that same time. And so we're seeing soldiers on TV liberating um, Kuwait and 
you know, rolling into Iraq. And it was, it was both the modern environment, the political environment, you know, military was highly regarded. Um, everybody had an uncle Al who served in Vietnam or Korea. So you always heard war stories around the Christmas table, you know, Christmas dinner table when the family got together. And then of course I had read this book. So combining the political situation with this exposure to one of the firsts and all the challenges she overcame, it just seemed like there was no other option for me. And, and after that, there wasn't starting in seventh grade, I decided I'm going to West Point. Awesome. So was it just strictly you were focused on the army or did you even consider anything to do with the Air Force or Navy? So from the advice of my dad, he was a West Point grad as well. And he, he recommended applying to all the schools. And my mom is one of those dot the I's cross the T's type of person. So I applied to all of the the major academies um, and went through the interview process, but I really did have my heart set on West Point. And did you know specifically which occupation within the army that you wanted to do at the time? You know what? I really didn't. Um, it didn't, it didn't flow. Like everything seemed really, really cool until I got to West Point and I was like, oh, I'm going to be MI because those guys are the really smart guys and they do all the cool stuff. And when you hear about these FBI people, they were always prior intelligence in the military. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to be MI. And then, and then I went to my first demo range and said, nope. I'm an engineer. (laughs) It's really different in Canada. So our military academy combines all three. So we have Army, Navy, and Air Force because we're so much smaller. So all of the officers that do that program go to the same college. So we don't have like the states where they have, you know, West Point and um, the Air Force Academy. Academy, I love Kings Point though. It's a beautiful campus. Absolutely gorgeous. During university for you, you do sort of classes and military activities during the week. And then during the summers, what sort of training do you do? So before you start your freshman year, which we call our plebe year, you have your cadet basic training, which is all the same requirements of any basic training in the the army at least. But then they add on academic testing and you also get, uh, have sports days. And the sports days are to see who should play what sports once the school year starts, kind of preschool tryouts. And then between your freshman and sophomore year, you have in the States, what's the equivalent of advanced camp for our ROTC officers for West Point. It's, uh, we call it Camp Buckner and you're doing um, squad level tactics, maybe a, a little bit of platoon tactics, but moving through the field and living in the field and really starting to understand the combat tactics, the small unit tactics. So being a Navy person, I don't, I have about zero experience in the field. So what were your first impressions when you sort of went on your first field exercise or course? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, when I've gone camping, camping is you have this requirement and you have this expectation and there's, there's more to camping, but when you're in the field, its sole focus is getting mission accomplishment. So I really enjoy, I really enjoyed my first field training exercise, FTX, because it was like, oh, well, I'm not going to shower. So I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to rip my hair back in a bun. I don't need to look cute. I don't need to wear anything special. I know what I'm going to wear. I know what I'm going to carry. I know what I'm going to do. And now I just need to execute. And I really loved that 
singular focus of everyone there. And I actually had a really interesting experience. So I explained the first two summers of being a cadet somewhere in between your second and third year or your third and fourth year, you actually go out to an active duty unit for a month and you kind of play Lieutenant. So you get to get a taste of what you're going to be after graduation. And in my case, I went to the 82nd airborne division, you know, movies are written about this books are written about like everybody knows the 82nd because they did this in Normandy and they did this in this war. So I got to jump in to a two week field problem with the 82nd airborne division. So, you know, when you're talking about my first real field problem, not as a cadet, but as an acting Lieutenant, I'm jumping in with a radio. I'm running off the, the drop zone. I'm, in a position, I've got soldiers around me. I'm telling people to go here and there. Like I felt like I was in a movie and then realized again, this is so much better than any version of camping or pretending, even though we were pretending to be at war, it was really neat because there was that singular focus of all 175 of us who just jumped out of an airplane. So did you go to jump school prior to that? Yes. Yes. So I went to jump school. Jeez. 97? Maybe not. Yeah. No, 1998. I went to jump school in 1998. And how long is that course? It's three weeks. It's kind of grueling. It's at Fort Benning, Georgia. So for somebody who was raised in Wisconsin and went to college in New York, going in June to Fort Benning, Georgia and sweating and being in full uniform and running everywhere in boots, because everywhere you went, you had to run. So I was dying, but I was also dying in that way, as you well understand, that sucks so good. Like, it's that awesome, this sucks, we're sucking together. It's beautiful. So yeah, I love Airborne School, but yeah, I went and I guess it was 98. I find the more, the more it sucks, the better the sense of accomplishment at the end, for sure. Definitely. Most definitely. Sometimes at the time, it's that sort of shared complaining and everyone's hating their life at the time. And then two weeks later, when it's all over, it's everyone's so enthusiastic, like, oh, remember this, this story and that story. And it just becomes this good memory. And they kind of forget how much they were complaining at the time. Yes. And then my husband went to airborne school probably 10, 15 years after I did. And, you know, he's telling the stories and you go off the same towers and you get stuck in the same pea gravel where, you know, that those little pebbles get stuck in your shoes and in your knee pads and just it's the same stories even 15 years apart which makes it even more fun and so when you were doing these difficult courses you mentioned you had sort of played a few sports growing up but did you have any trouble with the physical aspects of these courses or were you pretty much good to go so i wouldn't say i was good to go but i was well prepared and one of the things, whether it's being one of the first women to go to ranger school or going to airborne school or going to West Point, there's never been a time where I didn't know what the physical requirements were. And so if you have the answers to the test, why wouldn't you study for it? So at airborne school, they emphasize upper body strength because as you're jumping out of an airplane, your chute will go whatever way the wind blows it. Well, you have to be able to reach up, grab the risers and pull them down. So you have to do pull-ups every day that you're at airborne school. Therefore, the minute I decided I wanted to be airborne, I started training to ensure I could do pull-ups. So was it hard? Yes, but it wasn't as hard as it could have been because I had the answers to the test and I chose to study for the test in front of me. 
And did you do that on your own or did you hire personal trainers or go to specific gyms to prepare? I did not hire anyone. This is one of those, you know, at West Point, it's easy because you have an entire school, a campus of 4,000 people who are all going to be commissioned officers when they graduate. So everybody's worried about being intellectually sound, tactically sound, and physically capable because nobody wants to start their first job and not be ready for it. So the whole school was that way. Um, I will tell you, I read a lot of Muscle and Fitness magazine. Then they came out with Muscle and Fitness Hers eventually. And then I fell in love with Oxygen magazine when that first came out. But I would read Magazine Magazine. I would tear out those little workouts. I would try everything. Um, I thought I was gonna be a bodybuilder someday. If I just did the same leg raises that Ronnie Coleman did, someday I'd have quads that had four heads and look like his. But uh, yeah, I think my personal training and my kids are getting a lot better because I've now since actually gone to school and learned how to be a coach and a trainer. So my kids are getting a lot better version. They don't have just a magazine in front of them. But no, I, I, I never used a trainer. It was just me and my buddies trying to figure out how to be as badass as possible. And, and literally, that's what we'd say to each other. We're like, yeah, let's go be badass today. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting now, too, because I always get ads on Instagram for whatever different special forces or operator or whichever course there is in the military. There's someone who has a program to prepare you for it. And that information is also instant and it's there. But like you said, back in the day, it was Oxygen magazine. And I, I still remember I had that Navy SEAL fitness book. There would just be like push-up pyramids or running or whatever. And that was it. There wasn't all of this extra stuff and all of these resources instantly on your phone that you could refer to. Yes, yes. How do I calculate my one rep max? What should I be lifting today? Oh, I'm sore this way. What should I drink? What should I eat? And, and now all of those are answered. That being said, though, I did starting in about 20, 2012, 2013, when I started competing in CrossFit and I was doing an Ironman triathlon and I was still breastfeeding. I did hire a nutritionist and a coach to help me through it. And, and that was really, really good for me because a lot of the things we think we know, we don't know. But now that I'm 44, I can look at myself in the mirror or, you know, to be a moderately, not vulgar, but realistic, you know, you, you look at what's coming out. And if it doesn't look right, you I now know how to adjust my diet. And that's not something I would have done in my 20s. And it's probably not something I would have done had I not hired a professional to teach me something above the food pyramid. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many things now. I mean, with the whoop that tracks your sleep and your stress. And it's just if you want to sort of go beyond that baseline level of fitness, there's so much extra stuff out there. So after you went to West Point, what did your career look like? So everybody goes to West Point is commissioned active duty army, unless you do some sort of slot switching. So a couple people will go Marine Corps every year, Navy, uh, Air Force, and then a couple will go to like an army advanced education program, med school. And those are really, really highly competitive slots. I couldn't have gotten one of them if I wanted to, but I didn't want to, but I do not try to act like I could have been competitive. So after West Point, I was commissioned. Um, I went to the engineer officer basic course at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And then from there, I went to my first duty station at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And 
soon after being commissioned and, and moving to Fort Stewart, September 11th occurred. So I then spent the four years I was at Fort Stewart, I spent um, two of those years deployed. Uh, from there, I went to the advanced course and then I got stationed in South Korea, which was a fantastic experience and something I, I never wanted, but I'm glad I had. And um, it was one of those where I just wanted to go overseas and people said, hey, if you say you want to go to Korea, you will definitely get Korea. So I was like, you know, I'd really want to go to Germany. I want to go to Italy. I want to go to all these cool stations. But I'd also kind of like to go to the place nobody else wants to go because it's a big leadership challenge. You know, there's a real world mission there. Like it sounds like a great opportunity. So I did two years in Korea. Before that, the army had sent me to get my master's degree in civil engineering. But then after two years in Korea, I met Mr. Wright and he was a Marine and we couldn't get stationed together. So we actually both got out of the military. He joined the reserve right away. And then I have a five-year break in service before I became a part-time soldier in 2012. What part of Korea were you stationed in? So I was in area one, I was in area two for six months and then area one. And, um, depending on how familiar you are with that area one is closest to the 38th parallel, um, area two is Seoul and then three and four, the more Southern parts of the country. So I was in Seoul for just under six months. When I first got there, I was on eighth army level staff operations for the engineering cell. And then I took company command in a city called Dongducheon. And then I moved to Weijambu. And uh, so I had two different company commands, one in Dongducheon and one in Weijambu. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I was there for a month uh, a few years ago. We were in Busan at the Navy base there. I loved Korea. So I think if I had an opportunity to get stationed there for, you know, a year or two, I would definitely be jumping on that for yeah. sure. So Busan is area four and you can have cars and you can bring spouses. Everything's changed since 2007 when I was there. But yeah, area one, you couldn't have a car, you couldn't have a spouse, you couldn't have, everybody lived on base. There were curfews. And of course, I was a young captain, so I had young soldiers who were doing young soldier things in town. So I had a very wonderful yet trying time as some soldier left for a day and somehow was back a little bit late for curfew and he was married to a girl who didn't have a passport and wasn't a U.S. citizen. So, you know, just normal Korea stuff. <laughs> Some administrative burdens there, I would imagine. And then, so you mentioned that you uh, deployed as well. Was that to Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere else? Yes. So in 2002, I went to Afghanistan um, soon after September 11th. Our first company in the battalion left, I think in October or November, and then the rest of us left early in 2022. And then in not 2022, sorry, 2002, we got back from Afghanistan, got most of the dust off our equipment and then loaded it up so we could go straight to Iraq. So I was in Operation Enduring Freedom 1, which was Afghanistan. And then following that, I was in Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 the following year. And then the year after that is when I went to the advanced course in my graduate school. And how long are the deployments for the U.S. Army? So when we went to Afghanistan, our orders said until mission complete. So there was a lot of people who were there for over a year. I was really lucky. I was part of ADVON and I tried to be part of Trail Party. So I was only there, I think, like nine months, 
or so, but because our unit had just gotten back, I don't even know if it was that long. might've been seven and a half months. Sorry. The last time I was in Iraq, it was nine and a half months and that was 2018. So I think it was seven and a half months in 2001. And then in 2002, because we were one of the few units that had back-to-back deployments, I think we only stayed there five months. Other units were going over there and depending on mission, they might be there a year and a half, 14 months. That's so long. So typically when Canadians would go over, it would be six months is the typical yeah. sort of deployment time frame. So it's it's crazy for us when we hear about Americans going over for a year or a year and a half. Right. Yeah. For sure. You know, and interestingly enough, when I did that first deployment to Afghanistan and Iraq, the short deployments were good because we weren't doing hearts and minds missions. It was, you know, you go in, uh, we were combat engineers. So we were clearing areas, building housing facilities, doing construction, doing minefield clearing operations. Like it was all, you could hand it off to the next guy. And then in 2018, when I deployed and it was nine and a half months, even the one day a week that we tried to give the soldiers the day off. Like we'd rotate, make sure everybody had a day off. Even then you felt anxious breaking contact because it was a hearts and minds mission. And it was really important that there was some longevity so that you could build relationships. And when I left at nine and a half months, I was actually a little frustrated about leaving because we had finally started making progress. And I was introducing my replacement to the local national, my local national counterparts. And it was, you know, a general officer that I was working with him to improve his military installation. NATO was giving him equipment for him to use. My soldiers were training his soldiers how to use the construction equipment for actual construction because they had previously used that equipment for combat operations, like using dozers to knock down buildings with enemy combatants in them. So it was really good to be there. But as I introduced my replacement, I almost felt like I was abandoning my Iraqi counterpart. So I don't know that the length of deployment, it was really hard on my family, but it was also really hard on the Iraqis. So it was too long for my family and and too short for the local nationals. Yeah, I have heard that same thing. I mean, I listen to so many military podcasts and whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan, when people are doing those hearts and minds, it takes so long to gain that trust. And then all of a sudden you're turning around and you're leaving and then the next person's coming in. So the locals just see this cycle of by then they're on their 10th person that they've seen that's promised to do whatever. So it would be definitely very hard for them as well. Definitely. So you meet Mr. Wright, you end up leaving the military. So what do you do on the civilian side? So at that time I got a job, um, I interviewed with a lot of different companies, finally accepted a position with Shell Oil Company as a project manager, which was a much smoother fit than I ever thought it would be. You know, you spend your time as an active duty soldier and you're like, how do these skills relate? But doing construction in whatever country or even sometimes in Texas where we're miles from the nearest paved road And there's this huge 2000 acre ranch where we found oil and we've got to get, build an infrastructure to pull the oil out of the ground and then get it somewhere so it can be processed. That doesn't need skills too different from what I did in the military. So it was actually pretty interesting that my, my job with Shell Oil 
Uh, I think the army really prepared me for it. I worked for Shell for 12 years. After five years of being a Shell employee though, I really missed the military. So I wasn't at a place with two young children and being happily married and also getting a corporate paycheck versus the army paycheck. I wasn't at a point in my life where I was willing to quit that and go back on active duty. So I joined the reserve. I actually got pulled in via Facebook. Somebody kind of recruited me for a unit and my very first drill, we went rock climbing and then some of the guys after climbing said, Hey, do you want to go, you want to go skydiving? Yes, of course. Why not? And I was, I was so happy. I was back with my tribe. I was with my people. Yeah. I have heard that a lot as well. I interviewed her name is Sarah Apgar. She's got this company called Fit Fighter and she had been in the military and then sort of left to go to the corporate world. And then just ended up the same thing that you said, you know, she, she missed that camaraderie. She ended up joining a volunteer fire department, but it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain to people who aren't in the military, what that atmosphere in that group is like. Yes. Yeah. The, the best way I love describing the military tribe is right now today, I could call up any of my buddies that live within probably a 50 mile radius and say, Hey, listen, I need somebody meet me for a pickup game of basketball or anything other random. Let's go paddle boarding or I need to go, I need to go meet at a rifle range. I need to blow off steam and damn near every single one of them would look at their spouse and be like, Hey baby, I'm sorry. We had plans. I got to go now. And, and that's the military community. They don't even have to be somebody you serve with. They just have to be somebody who you have some shared experiences with. It's amazing. It really is. And so throughout your career in the military, pre-ranger school, because that's sort of a different thing that I want to dive into. But up until then, did you ever have any issues being a woman in the military? You know, I am super blessed in the fact that we have all, and I'm sure you have as well, we all have our stories where, man, it just sucked to be a female. It, It was either somebody underestimated you or disregarded whatever you brought to the table. Like we all have those stories, but every story I have has a happy ending. So the idiot who underestimated me later ended up having to call on me because he knew I was the most reliable person on the team. And I got the, I'm sorry. So I've had a really, really good experience. And I know that's not everybody's experience. And I also know that part of it is I'm a super type A person. So when somebody comes up to me and isn't respecting me, I'm not going to wait for them to respect me. I'm either going to tell them, Hey, I'm here. You use me or I'm going to tell them to go to hell, which does make that process easier. If I was more of an introvert, I think that would be a much bigger challenge to overcome. Okay. And then walk me through this decision leading up to go to ranger school. Oh, it, it was stupidity after stupidity. You know, those people who say like they have the t-shirts that say, Hey, I bet you can't and hold my beer is kind of the, the answer. This is almost the adult version of that story. My star major at the time I was in this, this very small unit where as a major, as a field grade officer, Oh, for 11 years, 10 years, whatever it was in the army. I was the most, one of the most junior people in the unit. 
And he wrote me, he's like, Hey, listen, they're going to open up ranger school to women. You need to throw your hand in the air. You need to throw your, your name in the hat. And I just wrote him back. I'm like, man, I'm working for Shell Oil Company. I'm, you know, we've got a King Air that I take down to my project sites in South Texas where there's hot coffee waiting for me and a vehicle when the plane lands with the keys in it. I just jump in, go out and fly back home and sleep in my own bed. And I wrote Sergeant Major Payne and I was like, I, I like room service, man. Like I'm not, I'm not going to ranger school. I'm, I'm almost 37. So he knew he wasn't getting anywhere with me. So he contacted my husband and um, my husband was kind of a little sly about it. Like at the dinner table with the kids, we sit down, we're eating. And he's like, so talk to Sergeant Major Robbie Payne today. So ranger school, you know, and he looks up all the, the requirements for rap week. He's like, you can do all of this. And uh, he finally said to me, he's like, you know, if you don't try and no one passes, you're going to hate yourself forever. And so um, make a short story long. I was like, okay. So I went to Facebook and said, Hey, if you're my friend, you're going to support me. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and try to go to ranger school. That was it. Hey, here, hold my beer. So do you think that you still would have wanted to go if your colleague hadn't contacted your husband and enlisted him and trying to convince you? Or if your husband said, like, I don't think you should do that. Do you think that would have been the end of the story? Probably. And it's weird only because, you know, here I am, I'm working 50 plus hours a week for Shell. It's a great job. I make good money. I'm a reservist, but the unit I'm in didn't have a high op tempo. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of requirement, but I still got all the fun tribe stuff out of it. I've got these two beautiful kids that at the time were six and two. And I was just in this place where I wasn't just content. I was happy and, and I didn't have any itches I needed to scratch as a combat engineer who has a combat action badge, who's been to airborne school, been to air assault school, I didn't feel the need to prove myself. And that was part of Alan, my husband's argument. He's like, because you don't need to prove yourself, you're going to go for all the right reasons. So when it gets hard, you have nothing to quit on because you're going for you. And um, no, I, I don't think I would have gone without him because there's also that idea of when I left for ranger school, it wasn't just me leaving. It was the mother of my children. It was the wife of my husband. It was the employee of Shell. Like a lot of people left when I got on that plane and somebody else had to pick up my baggage. So without my husband's support or even nudging, I would have never even considered it to be completely honest. And what did these corporate people at Shell think? Were they just like, you are insane for doing this? I didn't tell them. So as a reservist, I, you do one weekend a month, two weeks out of, year, out of the year. So before they would let any women go to actual ranger school, they made us go to a pre-ranger course called RTAC. So it's the Ranger Training and Assessment course, and it's two weeks long. So I just told everybody I was going on my annual training. Of course, when I came back with a shaved head, there was a few more questions, but I didn't know that I was going to go to this school until March, maybe. So I went to pre-ranger in January, but the idea was 
every female who thought they were interested in going to ranger school that were in within these ranks applied for, I think it was 160 slots to the pre-ranger course. And then there was 60 slots ear noted for women in the actual April ranger school. So that was three TAC 15 was the, the class, sorry, four TAC 15. So it was the April class. And I didn't know how many people would graduate pre-ranger. So if 160 some odd people successfully, women successfully completed pre-ranger, then we were going to have to compete for those 60 slots to ranger school. And here I am, 37 year old mother of two working in corporate America and doing army for fun, part-time, there was no way people were going to choose me if there was a competition. They're going to pick active duty. The average age at that school is 23 years old. I hadn't done small unit tactics since before South Korea. So before 2005, because, you know, after I'm a company commander and above, I don't do squad and platoon level tactics. It didn't make sense for them to send me. So I didn't tell anybody at Shell that I was going. Um, and I even made jokes when people asked me why I shaved my head saying that I had a medical condition. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to put myself out there. Cause that was, that was scary too. What if I told my coworkers and then I failed miserably. So yeah, nobody, nobody actually knew I was going. And then when I came back, I was working on the 14th floor, something like that. And nobody knew anything other than I was gone. I went on a sabbatical. I had some military training. Some people just thought I deployed people who knew me well, knew about ranger school, but nobody else did. And I'm just going up to my office. It's a full, full elevator. And like floor two, this young lady gets on, starts staring at me, door closes. She starts going, oh my God, oh my God, it's you. She takes a selfie with me in the elevator and then she gets off on the fifth floor. And then the doors close and the elevator keeps going. And the other five or six people in the elevator are just sitting there staring at me. And they're like, what was all that about? And, and I didn't have time to tell the story. So I just said, I don't know, maybe she's crazy. And I just got off on my floor. And now this poor girl has this reputation for being crazy. <laughs> Oops. I love your story because it's sort of resonates with me because I'm about to turn 37. And when, whenever I sort of think about, you know, oh, I'd like to do this course in the military. And then I'm like, oh, but you know, things hurt now. And but the, I always go back and think of like, okay, Lisa Jaster's interviews. She went to ranger school when she was 37. I have zero excuses about my age right now. We're not dead yet, right, Kate? Yeah, exactly. And so going back, you had sort of mentioned that you made this Facebook post and I heard you talk about it on another interview. You got sort of a, a not so nice response from someone that yeah. responded to that post. Um, yeah, a real good friend of my husband's and the family is Latter-day Saints LDS. And basically what she had said, the wife said, you know, Lisa, you know, good for you. You're amazing. Your husband's amazing, but now it's time to be a mom. And further on in the post, she talks about, you know, if you're not there for your kids when they're small, if you're not there for the little things when your kids are small, they won't come to you when they get older for the big things. And for me, that was the absolute best, best thing anyone could have said. 
Because it's one thing when all your friends and buddies are saying, yeah, you're amazing, you're great. One, that's the obligatory, I support you because I'm your friend. And how much honesty is in there? I don't know. I don't know if all those other 140 people who posted really supported me or they just wanted to be supportive. But, you know, this person was 100% honest and they brought their whole self to that comment. And it was a very vulnerable thing for them to do, to put themselves out there like that, saying, hey, Lisa, I don't think you should do this. I think you're being selfish is, is basically what it came across as. And it kind of gave me, not kind of, it gave me the fuel I needed later on in ranger school. But even now when I'm making decisions, it's true. If you're not there for your kids when they're small, they're not going to come to you as they get. But how many dads do we expect to go on business trips and constantly expect fathers to be the primary in go on a business trip? And to deploy and to defend the nation. And, you know, in the US, even looking at um, draft was started again today, it only asks our males to go. In my house, Alan is 10 times the father that I am a mother, hands down. He is very involved in the kids. And I think part of the reason why he has such a great relationship with the children now, even while they're young, and Normally you kind of transition, right? My son is now 13. He plays football. He's starting freshman year of high school. That's usually when dad becomes more important than mom because it's not life needs. It's, Hey, I want to, I want to go out on a date. I like this girl. I'm having problems in school. I want to play football. And Alan was able to have a really close relationship that only mothers have with our kids when our kids were small. And now sometimes I'm jealous of it. But yes, I did take myself out of that equation, but the better parent was there. Again, hands down, this isn't me being humble, this is truth. But hands down, the better parent was there during those critical times. But also on the flip side, now that the kids are getting older, they appreciate the stuff I've done they appreciate the fact that, hey, I didn't make, I didn't make the robotics team. Well, let me tell you about a time your mama failed. Oh, that's right. You were alive. You saw it. So they see my, they see, and Alan does the same thing. They see us putting ourselves out there. They see us being willing to take chances and fail. And it brings us into a different light than a lot of other parents can present themselves because you can't show your kids your college years, but they got to see 37 year old mom, almost 38 graduating from ranger school. They got to see the impact of it when we were flown to DC and I donated clothing items to the Smithsonian and then gave a speech. They got to see that putting yourself out there and potentially failing Big risks have big rewards, but they also have big negatives. And so I would have never sat and contemplated the impact to my family quite as much had she not made that Facebook post. And when I was really down and I had one night when I just, it was miserable and it was raining 
And it was like, I didn't even want to eat, but you have to eat because you can get kicked out for not eating because they don't give you much food <laughs> and they don't want you dying or passing out. So like I couldn't do anything. And I just pulled my poncho over me and I laid down on top of my rucksack in a little ball and literally just started crying. And I was like hugging my helmet and thinking it was my kid. And I was like, oh, just go to a mentally happy place. And I actually thought of that post. I thought of our LDS friend and I thought, why am I here? I'm not here to change army regulation. I'm not here to change anything. I'm here to prove to my three-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son that your life doesn't begin and end in your school years. Like you're still able to make changes and do amazing things forever. You just have to be willing to take the risk. And sometimes that means you've got to leave the ones you love. Yeah, I mean, those were my thoughts when I was listening to it. So I don't have kids, so I can't relate on that side of it. But I thought, okay, so my mom's a school teacher, so she would never be in, in ranger school. But I was thinking, how cool is that? That shows them too. You can do these things that are so difficult if you put your mind to them and train hard enough, right? So I think, you know, maybe if you missed a birthday here or there, but in the end, you're like, yeah, my mom missed my birthday, but she was at ranger school and she finished and this is so amazing, right? So. And I think the key is too, it can't be every year I'm volunteering for a deployment or I'm going to a six month school. Like I, that can't be a continuum. And for a lot of our soldiers, it is because that's what, that's what our government asks of us, right? But it can't be me volunteering to leave all of the time, but doing it for what I feel is a good cause also teaches them that you need to fight for what you believe in as well. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about and that I see online, and it just drives me nuts, of course, is this idea that if women make it through one of these schools, that obviously they could not have done it without the standards being lowered for them. Never mind that we can actually do it or that sure standards have probably been lowered for men in certain cases, but that doesn't make any sort of headlines. So what would you say to those people? So I had one of the most fantastic experiences that answers this question. And it was in mountains at ranger school. So that's the second phase of the school and physically the most taxing. I died. I fake died in a firefight. And in the process of fake dying, my battle buddy was a smaller guy. He probably weighed... He probably started ranger school at 160 pounds, but by mountains was in the 140s. And he went, he had to lift me up and I had all my kit on and I had a rucksack and everything else. So somebody grabbed the ruck and he was supposed to lift me up. And so I had to kind of kip, even though I was dead, I kind of kipped so he could pick me up. And I was 135 pounds at the time. And he's like, oh, Thank God you lost weight, Lisa. I couldn't pick you up a few weeks ago. And so the example, I, or why this is a great example is people make these fitness arguments about women in the field because we're more petite in stature. Well, Filipino men are more petite historically in stature. Samoan men are freaking huge, typically. 
So should we say Samoans can't join the military because nobody could drag their ass out of combat if they got shot? Should we say Asian men can't join the military because they're smaller in stature and they wouldn't be able to drag a Samoan out if the Samoan got shot? No, nobody says that. So why would we take 51% of our nation's population and say, no, you can't even try because you're a girl. And then, so you get, first of all, those physical arguments blow my mind. The other thing is turn on the CrossFit games. If you doubt that women can do something, go ahead and turn on the CrossFit games or watch women's football or hell, watch lacrosse. You see a woman playing rugby or lacrosse, there will be no doubt in your mind that she can handle any physical task. That's one thing. But then you get these arguments about our biology and what we can and cannot do. I just want to tap those people on the head and say, aren't you cute? Because women in our history, in the U.S. history, from Native Americans on, women have been working in the fields with babies strapped to them and doing plenty of hard physical labor. We've done just fine with our own biology without anyone else helping us. Now, there's plenty of women who A, don't want to do it, or B, they get horrible menstrual cramps and they have, they have biological reasons why they can't do it. I promise you, those women aren't signing up to go to ranger school. Those women aren't trying to get in the infantry. Like, it's a self-disqualifier. If I've got issues with my womanness, I ain't trying to live in the field for months at a time. <laughs> and, and so the argument is, is such, it's such a fallacy. I've, I've hunted, I've fished. I, I hunted bear off a boat for I think six consecutive days. I was breastfeeding and I was menstruating. And guess what? The bears didn't attack me. They didn't run away. I didn't come out with cooties. I didn't get any infections and I didn't need a single dude to tell me what I had to do for hygiene. I was okay. And so, you know, I, obviously I get really frustrated by those comments because if you want to say women can't do it, then say people who can't deadlift 300 pounds can't do it because that's really what you're talking about. And if you want to talk about medical stuff, then unless you're an MD and you know my biology specifically, shut up because you don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, and I hear men saying this too. They're like, oh, women have different needs in the field. It's like, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we can take care of ourselves and worry about that. Like the guys don't need to be worrying about any of that. Or like you said, like telling us what we have to do in that case. But yeah, I mean, it is really frustrating because if they see maybe a guy who isn't doing as well on a course or who can't do a certain thing on a course, it's like, oh, okay, well, he's just not good at that, right? And that's that's fine. But if it's a woman, it's like, well, she can't do that because she's a woman. So it's just this added thing that people say. And, and sometimes I try not to, but sometimes I do go through the comment section on certain posts. And these people, I mean, a lot of them, I think have probably never even been in the military. They're just keyboard warriors who play video games. But it is it is frustrating to read and just this assumption that if a woman made it through something that that the standards must have been lowered in order for her to do that. Yes. And, and you know what, Kate, I will tell you, not only do I read the comments, but I screenshot them and I keep them and I love them. And I love them not just because they're fuel to the fire, 
because it is, I'm, I'm 44 years old and I am going to lift every single day until the day I die, unless it's a recovery day, which we call growth days. Cause I have problems taking days off. Uh, so we got to call them growth days. I will work out. Even if it's walking around the lake with my grandmother, I will work out every day. So I don't need those comments for fuel, but more often than not, when I go and I research the person who made the comment, I found the problem is they don't have a Kate or a Lisa in their lives. And so the only women they know are wonderful, fantastic women who aren't physical. And so they just don't know what that looks like. And I've been able to change more minds by just taking a step back and looking at it from a positive, hey, they just don't know a Lisa Jaster. Well, it's time they learn. And so I will reach out via Facebook, Instagram, any social media and say, hey, what are your questions? If you think I cheated at ranger school, tell me how you think I cheated when the mountains are just as high. Well, your pack was lighter. Maybe since my size six boots weigh less than my ranger buddy's size 10 boots, maybe it was about six to 10 ounces lighter because I have smaller boots. But other than that, like I needed the same gear to get through every mission that they did. You know, there was no, there was no sock drop off at the top for the women. So, you know, it's, you got to kind of peel that onion. And when I'm patient with somebody, those end up becoming my biggest advocates. Cause they're like, oh shit, I didn't think of that. Wow. Yeah. I guess the mountains weren't any lower for you. So even if you thought I had different push-up standards, I can't climb the rope any different than the guys do. Like they don't give me an easier rope with knots in it or anything. So I actually love all those comments. And I've found that um, my biggest advocates are people that I just stopped, took a breath and then had a good discussion with them. Yeah, that that is actually a really amazing that you do that. And people always assume that women who want to do these courses are doing it to try and prove a point or that it's some sort of social experiment. But it's like, no, I just want to go and do this course because it's cool, just the same as a guy would want to do it. And a lot of the courses that I would do, it's like, okay, maybe I recognize that most women wouldn't be into that, right? So I don't necessarily agree with this push that we have to have a certain percentage of women do these courses because most of them probably wouldn't want to. But it's like, no, we're not we're not trying to do this social experiment or prove something just because. It's like, no, I just want to go and do this course and <laughs> prove to myself that I can do it or have fun doing it, right? Yeah, so I leave on Thursday which is why I'm really glad you could squeeze me in this week. I leave on Thursday to go bow hunting with my husband and my two kids in Botswana. And again, that's not something 90% of the women I know want to do. Adam, somebody coming back to me and saying, well, you're a woman, you can't do that. But, or I'm not doing it to, for a social experiment so that people think something different of me. I'm doing it because it's fun. And whatever meat we don't save, whatever we don't bring back with us, we donate to local villages. And you know how good that feels to bring a kudu to a local village that's impoverished and needs, has needs. They love it. And they'll cook for us right there. And it's this mm -hmm. great experience. And I want to share that with my kids. And yes, I'm a mom that wants to share that with my kids. But just because I'm a mom doesn't mean I should enjoy it any less than the dad. We don't put that requirement of proof that you were just talking about on any other activity. 
other than, like if I want to fix a toilet, well, it's not me trying to prove myself. It's the toilet's broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have to call my husband because that's a boy task. Exactly. And I mean, you're involved in so much cool stuff. So one of the other things that I just got into recently was Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So what made you get involved in that? Yeah. So um, as soon as my son hit three years old, it was, that was as young as you could start most martial arts. And my husband started kind of testing different styles himself. And he had done Muay Thai previously when he was stationed in Okinawa. And I did martial arts. I was on the martial arts team while I was at West Point. So we both had done stand-up before, but both of us had been in scraps before. So we understood that almost every fight ends up on the ground <laughs> and what's the best on the ground fighting style. And that's Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, wrestling is great, but wrestling isn't self-defense. Pinning somebody doesn't stop them from coming at you. Choking them does. Breaking their arm does. Breaking their ankle does. So through a lot of discussions and debates, we decided Brazilian jiu-jitsu was our best option for our son. And it was only slightly tongue-in-cheek, the fact that he was, in fact, a redhead. Of course, I've been a redhead my whole life, so I didn't know. I don't know if he would get his his ass kicked, as my husband said, or more, it was those of us with red hair sometimes have anger management issues. But Zach trained and then Alan trained, and those two together had such a fantastic relationship through jujitsu. It was it was kind of like having a dog. When you have nothing to talk about, you can always talk about the dog. When you have nothing to talk about, you can always talk about jujitsu. And those two could bond over jujitsu. And then my son started doing tournaments, and I wanted to know more than just choke him, get him, son. Like I wanted to be able to know how to coach him and, and at least how to cheer. And so when my daughter came along, that was neat. But as soon as she started doing jits, actually, as soon as I stopped breastfeeding, I decided I was sick of being left out of all the cool conversations that the boys were having. So I joined jujitsu as well. And my process has been extremely slow because I've had two shoulder surgeries. I've had lots of injuries. I've had a deployment. I've had ranger school. So I've taken about four years worth of breaks in the last 10 years of training, but I've had such a fantastic time. And also some of my, the closest friendships, like, again, it's another tribe. So to be able to, Joe Rogan says it the best. He's like, it's the art of practicing to kill your friends. So you sit there and you're like, oh, would I choke you out with this? Yes. Okay. Show me what you did. Show me how you tried to kill me. And so it's a really... It's great in combatives, but it's also a great way to build another tribe external to the military. I mean, kind of the same thing. I, I heard people talk about it for years and made excuses why I couldn't go because I was sort of, you know, I'd be home for a couple of weeks or a month and then I'd be going away for two months. So I was thinking it didn't really make sense to, to join a gym and then go away. And I was supposed to go on a deployment this year and then the ship got... Right. retasked to Europe instead because of the Ukraine situation. So that got canceled. And as soon as it got canceled, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm joining jujitsu. And I mean, it's so awesome. Like you just, I, I get my butt kicked all the time because I'm so brand new, but it's just like these tiny people just completely dominating you in certain situations. I mean, I roll with bigger people too, and that's to be expected. 
But, you know, one of the owners, Lindsay, like she's just this tiny, cute woman that you would see on the street and not think very much. And it's like, meanwhile, she could just absolutely destroy anyone. Yes. So have you gotten your first submission yet where you submitted someone else? Yeah. So I did a tournament a couple of weeks ago because it was, they were supposed to have sort of an under one year category and there weren't enough people. So I ended up going against someone who was more experienced and she submitted me. But then I did end up submitting my next opponent, which I wasn't expecting, but it was it was so cool. <laughs> yeah. After you get the first submission, that's usually when people are hooked. I tell them, if you can do it for six months and have the new white belt walk in, and all of a sudden you know something they don't, you will be hooked forever. But it's, that first six months completely blows. Like, it's just awful. It is, yeah. I mean, I feel like I spend most of the time on the ground trying to escape. So, I mean, I guess it's good because I get to work on my escapes. And I know in my head, just just from listening to so many other podcasts and people talk about it, that it's, you know, you're in it for the long game. It's not an activity that you're going to master in in a few months, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it kills me because my instructor, he's 50-something, and I'm like, I should be able to smoke you. And I look at him, you know, his hands are all broke down with arthritis and knuckles are bent. It takes him about three seconds to have me praying that for breath, like just not able to breathe, not able to move. Absolutely amazing sport. And I, I honestly believe everyone should do it. But if you are a smaller person, especially if you're female, like it is a great, not only to build confidence and fitness because it's, it's a chess game. It's not just an attack and take to the ground or like with stand up all the attack from one direction. In jujitsu, somebody might be trying to get you from side control. Somebody, somebody's trying to pull you on top of them. Like you have to be extremely situationally aware. And when you practice situational awareness, you end up getting really good at all of the other parts of your life. When you sit in a restaurant or you go to a bar, suddenly you realize, hey, maybe my back shouldn't be this direction, or maybe this person who I feel comfortable with them this close, it's not really a safe area to be in. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you, because like you said, you're doing your your bow hunting and your jujitsu and your kids are involved in all of these activities. How do you balance all of that? What are your sort of tips or tricks for time management? So one of my least favorite sayings in the world is work-life balance. There is no such thing. And the more we try to find a balance is the more frustrated we get. So we're going on vacation. I know that I'm going on vacation as much as I love my family starting on Thursday, I'm going to be a hundred percent mom and wife. But until then, I'm going to be 100% focused on whatever I need to do for work so that I can be focused as mom and wife once we get overseas. And so how I balance that is I literally have a whiteboard inside my kitchen pantry that has all the things I have to get done that day before bed. And those become my priorities. And that includes if my daughter has volleyball practice and I have to write an article. I'm, I'm writing articles for men's journal 
and I need to get one submitted before I leave. So I'm not going to bed until those things are done. And then I have long-term goals written on my bathroom mirror in marker so that when I'm planning that my day, I'm also saying, okay, well, are these things I'm doing, these little reminders of what needs to be done today, do they properly nest with my long-term goals? And one of them is I want to be a brown belt in jujitsu. Eventually I want to be a black belt, but I can't be a black belt until I get my brown belt. So with myself going on vacation and having to get work done, am I able to work towards that goal? I can't, I can't get it all done, but I can squeeze in a workout and focus on grip strength and maybe even run some fit in drills with my son while we're working out. Cause you know, he's also working out with me a lot of times. Maybe I can do some fit in drills with him that no, I can't drive 30 minutes to go to jujitsu and spend an hour at the dojo, but I can still do 15 minutes of training here. And that's how I kind of fit that in. And I don't go stale. Also understanding that being a brown belt or ultimately a black belt, as you mentioned earlier, is a life goal. It's not a, it needs to be done by October, 2023. So the way I balance all these activities is really trying to analyze what's a priority today and then keep track of what is a long-term priority. I want to make X number of dollars a year. The number one thing I have written on both of those boards, absolutely at the top, it says be present. That's something that if you're trying to juggle too many things and you're not okay with saying not today to some of those, then you're never present because you might be hanging out with your family, but you're on your phone checking your emails or updating your website or whatever activity it is that you do on your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see a couple of Jocko books in the back there. So it's that prioritize and execute for sure. I just have a few more questions. So hopefully we can get through these without any more cutoffs here. So can you just explain what delete the adjective means? Thank you for asking that because I thought about it earlier. So I do have my first book coming out later this year. Um, and it, its title is delete the adjective. And it kind of goes back to the story of the smaller young man who had problems picking me up at ranger school and was happy when I lost weight. The idea behind it is my experience isn't, not that adjectives don't matter, but my experience isn't based on my adjectives. So having problems picking somebody up might not be because I'm a woman. It might be because I weigh 140 pounds. And so what I've always wanted whether it was working construction management for Shell Oil Company, whether it was being a combat engineer in the army, whether it was going to ranger school, whether it's being a contributor to men's journal. I don't want any of these adjectives to dictate what you think of me. I want to be judged based on my merit. So being female, being middle-aged, being all of these things that you would use to describe me, don't tell you anything about who I really am. They're great for grouping people together. They're great for celebrating firsts. They're great for a lot of reasons. But when it comes to specifically my job, 
I want to be judged based on merit and merit alone. So delete the adjective is all about wanting to be part of a merit-based community, which I believe the military most of the time is. We are a community where the fund underlying mission is to fight our nation's wars. And so I don't need to be a good female shooter. I need to be a good shooter, period. Um, and that's kind of where delete the adjective comes from. Long answer to a short question. Amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to read your book. And that was so well said. What are your plans for the future? Well, so I want to I wanna write that or get that book out. I also want to start... I've started a second book and I've started writing articles for men's journal. And the idea is for me is being one of the first to graduate from ranger school as a woman is giving me a voice. And I want to use that voice to tell people it's not a big deal that a woman graduated from ranger school. So my, my long-term goal is to get people understanding that, what got me through ranger school or what's getting me through other successes and failures in my life is my leadership style or um, my ability to talk to people that I know hate me and get them to understand what life looks like from my foxhole. So my, my next stages in life are all focused on how do I get that message out so that the younger generation is judged by their ability to add value to a community. And part of that too is I will never be super smart on history. I will never be really good at the English language. Like I, the only F I've ever gotten in my life was in English and it was in college English. And it wasn't because I skipped classes because I went to West Point. And I, so me writing is ridiculous, but you know, uh, I think it's, it's an Einstein quote. If you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will always believe that it's stupid. So part of this idea of pushing a meritocracy is everybody's good at something. So let's stop trying to make, well, everybody needs to be good at this or that. If somebody's not physically fit, this is a big thing the U.S. Army is dealing with right now. What should the physical fitness standards be? In my humble opinion, there should be an extremely high physical fitness standard or requirement for anyone, male, female, transgender, who wants to be combat arms. Now, does that mean that a lot of females won't be able to branch combat arms? Possibly, yes. But that's not a bad thing. And we need to be okay with that not being a bad thing because it's a job requirement. And... Again, to make a short story long, the answer to that question is I want to get out there and I want to use the the voice that being a ranger school, a female ranger school graduate has given me. And I want to tell people that we're all good at something. Let's figure out what we're good at and stop judging people based on their adjectives and judge them on their actual merit. And I don't know how long that'll take and I don't know what communities I can influence but I know the military and also the business world is, is one of those arenas. And I'm working heavily. I just signed a contract to be a partner in Talent War Group. We do leadership development and executive placement. 
We do executive coaching. On top of that, I do keynote speeches. That is another avenue where I can help push this idea of meritocracy in communities. And, and it feeds directly into the diversity and inclusion world where I don't want to be the token woman. I want to be brought in because I do have cognitive diversity, which is impacted by the fact that I'm a woman, but it's not, don't hire me because I'm a woman, hire me because I think differently and your organization needs that diversity of thought. Right. And I'm just looking at your, your email signature here. You're involved in so many different things. Like you said, the Talent War Group, the McChrystal Group, Dive Pirates Foundation. So what is that? <laughs> Dive Pirates is a fantastic nonprofit that takes adaptive athletes. So those are people that have something uh, unique about them, whether they're missing a limb. Some of them, some of our, um, our pirates are sightless or visually impaired. Some have hearing impairments, but for whatever reason, they're not your, they're an atypical athlete. And the Dive Pirates organization has sponsorships to train both a dive buddy and the adaptive diver to go scuba diving. And so what happens is it's, and it wasn't focused originally around the military community. Of course, a lot of military people have um, leveraged the opportunity or taken advantage of the scholarships we have, but people who, for whatever reason, couldn't just go scuba diving like you or I could. Um, we take them to Grand Caymans, various locations, and with a buddy, get them in the water. And those are people who they feel like when they lost a limb, they lost a part of who they were and learning to do something that not a lot of people do anyways, which is scuba diving is a great way to help with the depression as well as understand that just because you're injured doesn't mean that doors are closed. It just means that maybe your door looks a little different. Mm -hmm. That caught my eye just because that's right up my alley. I'm a, a diver with the Navy, so I'm going to have to look into that one a little bit more. Click on that link and read about it. I will. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Perfect. And so my last question that I always ask everyone during my interviews is what advice would you give to women looking to join the military and in your case, specifically to go to ranger school? Do it. One, you do learn what selfless service is. The military taught it to me. Motherhood has definitely uh, increased my awareness of thankless, selfless service but there is a altruistic reward for just being part of something bigger and accomplishing a mission that isn't necessarily yours. And I think first and foremost, that makes people better citizens. It makes them better humans, makes them better um, contributors to their community. And then the second benefit is uh, we started this interview, we started this discussion where uh, you and I have both made references to the importance of tribe and there is no better sorority fraternity than the military, the Facebook groups and the, the text messages and the, the community I have found through the military has brought me through some great times and some dark times. Um, 
and my military buddies are the first ones to tell me when I'm barking up the wrong tree or misbehaving. So to sum up, if somebody is at all interested in joining the military, do it. Even if it's for a minimal enlistment time, do it to understand what it's like to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And then finally, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy and I'm so happy that we were finally able to do this interview. And uh, I hope you have a really great family vacation coming up. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.